Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back for our Championship Week edition of the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell to talk about all the action. We've got a lot on our plates today. So first, we're going to be uh, talking about Week 14, the end of the regular season on Thanksgiving weekend in our first segment. Breaking down the best wins, worst losses, handing out some game balls, and giving you all that info. Before we go into our talk of championship week, though, in our second segment, we're going to be looking at Black Monday and the chopping block for coaches across the country, seeing who got the axe, what might happen at some schools, and look at some surprises as well that happen across the country. In our third segment, we'll be diving into all the Power 5 championship games before finishing up in our last segment with our look at the group of five championship games, breaking down all of those and offering you some food and drink suggestions. Great to be here with you, John. Hope everything's going well. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing about as well as can be expected after this past weekend, but, you know, we'll get into that more, as I'm sure, as we get going. But uh, otherwise, pretty good. Uh, last last full weekend, I guess, was last weekend, and we got championship weekend this weekend. A lot of really good matchups coming up, so I really fired up to, to sit back and watch championship weekend as a neutral fan with no real rooting interest for once. Yeah, that's always, uh, honestly, can be quite fun. Certainly, it's always nice when your team is playing for the spoils, um, but at the same time, it can also be really nerve-wracking and doesn't allow you to enjoy just the aesthetics of it all. So, I have two teams in championship games this weekend, so I'll be on pins and needles, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, let's look at Thanksgiving weekend because, you know, it's rivalry week always. Tons of fun games across the board. Um, Lots of good wins, lots of bad losses, as you mentioned or alluded to there. We'll definitely talk about that a bit. But what did you see as the best win of the weekend, John? I think it's hard to go against a, a game that was of so much importance Uh, in the Commonwealth Cup when you've got a a team like Virginia that's lost 15 straight times to their rival Virginia Tech. And this one had as much on the line as any of their rivalry matchups with the Hokies has had because the Coastal Division of the ACC was on the line. Most likely an Orange Bowl berth regardless of the outcome of the ACC championship game because obviously if Clemson wins the ACC title game, then they're going to the college football playoff and that would leave the Orange Bowl to take the number two team in the ACC, which would likely have been the winner of this game. So, you know, Virginia finally getting that monkey off of their back. You have to feel good for guys like Bryce Perkins. You have to feel good for Bronco Mendenhall, who a few years ago made one of the, I would say, most stunning moves in the coaching carousel. And we'll get more into the coaching carousel later. But when he left BYU to go to Charlottesville and take over a really downtrodden Virginia program, that was a really shocking decision Um, And, you know, there was obvious growing pains there because he really had to build that program up. But build that program up, he's done. Virginia winning nine games and capturing the Coastal Division is just a hell of an accomplishment for him. Um, You know, that game had a lot. I mean, it was back and forth, really quality football game. Virginia got off to the really good start with the two long Bryce Perkins touchdown runs in the first quarter. 
Then it looked like Virginia Tech kind of started their dominance and took over the game. They had a touchdown lead going into the fourth quarter, and it kind of looked like it was going to be another heartbreaker for the for the Cavaliers. But they made some big plays there in the fourth quarter. Got a go-ahead field goal with a minute 23 to go from 48 yards away, and then got the strip sack fumble where their defense just unloaded on Hendon Hooker at the end of that game to finally win. And, you know, being to relate this to my own life, like when I was a kid growing up, Alabama lost six straight Iron Bowls to Auburn, which is nowhere close to 15, but it's still a long time in a row to lose to your rival school. So I can understand. And that just that sense of relief that, you know, Virginia fans had to have when the clock finally hit zero. I'm sure when they recovered the fumble to take a two possession lead with a minute to go, they probably had a big exhale, but I think most of them were probably still a little bit nervous until clock finally struck zero for them. So what a great win for that program. Now we got the the Coastal Division cycle is now complete as we got our seventh champion in seven seasons, um, and, and Virginia certainly earned their way there. Yeah, we're definitely at peak Coastal right now, the way that all all transpired. I, I'm with you there. That was a really great win for the Cavaliers, especially with the way Virginia Tech came into the game, riding two consecutive shutouts and really looking strong over the past seven games with their only loss before the Cavaliers coming to Notre Dame by a point. Um, the fact that they allowed Bryce Perkins to basically manufacture the entire Virginia offense at once is sort of unsettling for that Bud Foster defense, the way they look so good recently. But at the same time, Virginia has to be a little nervous going into that Clemson game. And we'll obviously talk about that more in a bit. But the fact that Bryce Perkins accounted for all but 17 of their offensive yards is especially sobering. But in the end, a win is a win. And however it comes, Virginia fans have to be really excited about it. Uh, I think it's a really great choice. On the flip side, what a heartbreaker for Virginia Tech after they looked like they'd finally built up the momentum in the second half of the season. I looked at another uh, rivalry game that had really high stakes that uh, is my best win of the week. Obviously, it's one that's near and dear to my heart. Number 12, Wisconsin going to to Minneapolis and knocking off number eight Minnesota in a battle for Paul Bunyan's axe that doubled as the Big Ten West championship game. Wisconsin earned their trip to Indianapolis and they earned it in style. Jack Cohn looked really good going 15 of 22 for 280 yards and two touchdowns. He also added 30 rushing yards um, in a performance that we hadn't really seen since early October from him uh he seemed to really get back to that that level that he was at at the beginning of the season that made uh the Badgers really look like conference contenders Jonathan Taylor he he had a somewhat quiet day on the ground only ran for 76 yards but he busted in two scores added a couple of catches for 39 yards and another touchdown and uh, just really showed off his multifaceted skill set out of the backfield. At the same time, the Badgers defense held Minnesota to that exact same number of rushing yards as an entire team. So that defense finally stepped up really well. 
made the Gophers one-dimensional on their home field, really forced Tanner Morgan to try to win that game, and in the end, he couldn't do it alone. Uh, so the, the Paul Bunyan's axe is headed back to Madison uh, once again. Min, uh, Minnesota took it back last year to kill a long losing streak, so they know exactly how Virginia feels right now. Unfortunately, the the sweetness of that didn't last too long because it's going back into the case in Madison for uh, the Badgers to celebrate with another year. And, you know, getting Paul Bunyan's axe alone is always sweet, getting to take that back home, especially when you do it on your rival's field. But the fact that they get to go to Indianapolis is even bigger because win or lose, uh, Wisconsin now has a really great chance to go to the Rose Bowl. Yeah, I mean, that this looked like the Wisconsin team that really started out the season so hot before that stumbling game against Illinois and then kind of, you know, getting roughed up by Ohio State. But who hasn't been roughed up by Ohio State this year, to be fair? Uh, so that really was the complete performance we had come to see from the Badgers in September and early October before things kind of went off track a little bit. So really good bounce back for them. It looked like they were kind of dead in the water a couple weeks ago in the Big Ten West. It was going to take a lot for them to overtake Minnesota, but they played really well down the stretch. Um, proved that they can win a game without Jonathan Taylor having to, you know, run for 150, 250 yards or something like that. Jack Cohn really performed well. It's really impressed. We talked about last week the secondary issues Wisconsin had, and they really did a really good job reigning in Tanner Morgan, that really explosive group of receivers that the Gophers have. So definitely a great win. Yeah, it, yeah I certainly walked away really happy, and I imagine everyone did uh, in in Wisconsin and the fans that traveled across the border to, to Minnesota as well. But with the big wins always come the heartbreak, and uh, definitely heartbreak there for Virginia Tech and for Minnesota, but there was heartbreak all across the country. What did you see as the worst loss of the weekend, John? You know, no one expected really expected Texas A&M to go to Baton Rouge and upset LSU on Saturday. But if you're paying a coach $75 million guaranteed dollars in a 10-year contract, you don't expect your team to get blown out like Texas A&M got blown out. Um, obviously, we talked in the preseason about Texas A&M potentially taking a little bit of a step back this year just because the schedule was so tough. But we expect them to be more competitive than this. Um, and, you know, they finished the regular season 7-5, and five, but, I mean, who's the best team that Texas A&M beat this season? If you're looking back at the schedule, I, I honestly don't know. Is it Ole Miss? Is it South Carolina? I mean, they didn't beat really any quality teams all year. Every good team they played, they lost. And then this Saturday, I guess the LSU team that they beat last season and one of the best games of the regular season, I believe it was, what, seven overtimes? that Texas A&M escaped 74-72 in College Station last year. And just to see the trajectory of the two programs, LSU moving forward, obviously winning the SEC West, finishing the regular season undefeated, and now effectively clinching a spot in the college football playoff, in my mind, regardless of what happens against Georgia, um, LSU's in. So I, just Texas A&M looks so lifeless. This isn't a vintage LSU defense. The The talk for LSU all year has been the offense. So Texas A&M giving up 50 points, not a huge surprise to me because LSU's offense has rolled over everyone it's faced this year. Joe Burrow is going to win the Heisman Trophy. Clyde Edwards-Elair has had a, 
a fantastic second half of the season in particular. But AM only managing seven points. Kellen Mond going 10 of 30 for 92 yards and three interceptions. Just especially with a guy like Jimbo Fisher, who's always hung his hat on the offensive side of the ball, for them to manage only 169 yards against an LSU defense that honestly has been average all season long was really surprising. And that's the worst loss of the weekend to me. If this game had been a little closer, I don't think anyone would have anything to say about the Aggies. But I, I, I think for the first time, the fans in College Station are probably starting to question a little bit the decision to give all that money to Fisher, particularly when you start looking at how his tenure in Tallahassee ended and how Florida State's program has looked over the last few years. Yeah, definitely something to really consider moving forward for Texas A&M. I don't think they'd pull the plug on him uh, necessarily. They're not going to this season, obviously. I think his seat will be somewhat hot next season. Um, But at the same time, that division they're competing in is always tough. And I I mean, running running the entire slate is always going to be a difficult difficult thing to pull off. I mean, even during the height of Alabama's dynasty, it was rare for them to get to the end of the season without a loss in that column. So the fact that LSU did that this year is really impressive. And the way they ended the season was unbelievable. I mean, Burrow looked great in that game. Uh, Jamar Chase had a huge game at receiver, hauling in seven catches for almost 200 yards and a couple of scores. Uh, but that defense should not, based on the way they played, that should not have transpired the way they did. Texas A&M just looked like they laid down. I'm right there with you. That's It, it was embarrassing. Um, I hate to do it, John, but the worst loss I saw came in on the planes it, it uh and obviously was not this big a blowout but sometimes those are even more heartbreaking the way they play out the reason i saw this as the worst loss you know coming into the game last week i proje- I, I predicted auburn would would pull off the upset and you obviously were you had to pick alabama but you yourself mentioned he didn't feel great about it um, but, but, you know, with this loss, Alabama won't be in the college football playoff for the first time since it was inaugurated in 2014. And I, I think just the way this loss happened, the way that Alabama, if you look at the stats, they dominated this game. They absolutely dominated this game. They outgained the Tigers by 161 yards on the road. They held possession for nearly 36 minutes, uh, Mac Jones looked great. Like, I'll be honest, for much of the game, he looked really good. 26 at 39, 335 yards and four touchdowns. But he threw those two costly pick sixes. And, I, you know, once you've done that, once the, the, the script flips 14 points in the opposite direction like that, just an immediate hit, it's hard to recover. The fact that they were within three points and had the chance to tie up the game there with two minutes left was honestly a testament to how good Alabama continues to be under Nick Saban. But kicking problems have always been their problem, and I I, I know it, you know, 
Joseph Bulavas hit that 43-yarder in the first quarter, and it looked like, hey, this might be the year that they don't finally have a kicking issue in the Iron Bowl and things go right. But missing a game-tying field goal from 30 yards, doinking it off the post, and and then, you know, the last, the last thing I just... I, hate to go into this this much John but the last thing I gotta mention is those penalties 13 penalties for 96 yards um including that 12 men on the field penalty when they had the chance to get the ball back and possibly do it again but you get that that 13th penalty and it just allows Auburn to run out the clock and it, it was a sloppy performance by a Nick Saban team uh, all around. Um, you know, I think they got the offense set up really well, but they just weren't playing responsible football the whole game. So in that regard, just for the circumstances it had in the entire playoff picture, it, I saw this as the worst loss of the week. Yeah, well, obviously I have some thoughts. Um <laughs> You and I have both talked about what we would call Auburn voodoo over the years. Um, for you, you got your taste of it in the 2010 national title game when, you know, Michael Dyer was maybe or maybe not down. He was. Anyway, um, but that was, I mean, you've never experienced Jordan Hare Stadium voodoo before, and it's on a whole different level when you go down to the Plains. Let's get started real quick. Bill Connolly, who you and I follow extensively when he was with SB Nation, now with ESPN. He posted his post-game win expectancy. He does the advanced box scores on Sunday. Alabama's post-game win expectancy in the Iron Bowl, 94%. Under those circumstances, with the numbers that transpired in that game, Alabama had a 94% expected win percentage and lost. So you're talking about that end-of-half stuff as well. Like I think it's fair to mention Auburn give, being gifted an extra timeout to get that field goal off. To And what was the difference in the game? A three-point game, that field goal should have never happened, should have never counted. Aside from that, Anders Carlson, Auburn's kicker, was 4 of 11 on field goals from 40-plus yards coming into this game and magically hits 4 for 4 in the Iron Bowl because, of course, he does. Alabama has two mistakes. Mac Jones plays a great game, makes two mistakes. Both are returned for touchdowns against a defense who came into that game with zero defensive touchdowns all season long. And let me add some salt in the wound on this whole kicking issue Alabama has. Guess how many kicks opposing teams have missed against Alabama this year, Zach? Zero. Zero. Not a single one in 12 games. Just to add salt to the wound of Alabama's kicking issues. Of course, every opposing kicker they faced has booted every single ball through the upright all season long. I just, you know, I don't even, I just expect weird things to happen in Jordan here now. It doesn't surprise me anymore. It's just, it's the worst place on earth. I'll just, I'll just come out and say it. It's the worst place on earth. I hate everything about playing football games there because something like this always happens. Uh, but you really hit the nail on the head when you're talking about the penalties. This has been probably the most undisciplined team Nick Saban's had since his first team in 2007. Um, just uncharacteristic penalty after penalty in the worst times. The 12 men on the field at the end of the game, I think, was a perfect epitome of everything that's happened to this team all season long. But a lot of that, I think, goes back to the preseason injuries they suffered. When you're down to two freshman inside linebackers, you're down to 
three freshmen playing meaningful snaps on the defensive line, a freshman on the back end, just a defense that was so young this year. Um, some schematic issues you could go into too, but I think the youth really finally hit Alabama and there wasn't a Tua Tungavailoa to bail them out. Um, you know, obviously Mac Jones played well, but the two pick sixes obviously proved really costly, but yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, that's what I said in the intro. I've had better days. Um, so I, I agree it's a bad loss. Definitely knocks Alabama out of the playoff race. It'll be weird. I don't know what to do with my time. Alabama's going to go play a uh, presumably a New Year's Six Bowl game. Uh, at worst, the Citrus Bowl. I imagine a ton of juniors are going to sit that game out with draft eligibility. Uh, so that'll be a really interesting story to follow, too. So I don't know. I don't have anything else. I'm rambling at this point because – it was a heartbreaker. Losses cause us to ramble like that for sure. Um, but like you said, I don't think either of us were necessarily surprised by the way this played out. We talked about it last week is something that could very well transpire the way it did. What did surprise you this weekend though, John? There certainly were some big, big shockers out there. So what did you see as the biggest surprise of them all in week 14? You know, Syracuse has probably been one of the most disappointing teams that we really haven't talked about a lot this season. Dino Babers' team had such a great year last year. They were the preseason projection as the biggest threat to Clemson, um, if you could call it that. But they were the team that people thought maybe had the best shot at dethroning Clemson in the ACC, or at least giving them a run for their money. They finished the regular season now 5-7. and seven. They're going to miss a bowl game, but they... In their final regular season game of the, of the year in the Carrier Dome, they beat what's been a pretty good Wake Forest team all season long. I wouldn't have expected Syracuse to win that game. They ended up winning 39-30 as a six-point underdog against a Wake Forest team that really still was in contention for a potential Orange Bowl berth. So you could really classify this as the worst loss of the weekend, too, if you felt so inclined, because the Demon Deacons could have got to 9-3, and three, and then it would have been a really interesting case for the committee whether they chose wake forest to go to the orange bowl or or virginia um from the acc so i that with the stakes on the line definitely disappointing for us very surprising i thought that the orange i guess finally played like the team that we thought they might be this season um on the final weekend of the regular season to finish out their season with no bowl game in sight so i was very stunned to see that result yeah, certainly. And I mean, just the whole way this game went down, Wake Forest had the chance to effectively win it in regulation with a missed field goal. And uh, and then the way everything went down in overtime with Syracuse kicking the field goal and then the defense getting the fumble return for the touchdown for a nine-point win in overtime. You don't usually see that scoreline in an overtime game or that margin of victory in an overtime game. But yeah, I, I mean, I think Wake Forest coming into that, if they'd won, would have been the front runner for the Orange Bowl bid, but they they effectively threw it away on the road at the Carrier Dome. So heartbreak heartbreak for Demon Deacons fans, I think just a measure of uh, moral victory with a little bit of, you know, positive to end the season for Syracuse. But yeah, definitely, I was surprised by that one as well. I almost went with it myself, but 
there was another division race that was on the line on uh, the weekend that actually it happened, I think it was Tuesday or, yeah, it would have been Tuesday. So in Maction, uh, looking at the Mac West race, we had Western Michigan basically came in needing, win in their in. If they won, they're going to Detroit for the championship game as a as a big favorite against Miami of Ohio. Instead, a Broncos team that was averaging 36 points a game was held to two touchdowns by a Huskies defense that came in giving up 30 a game. So suddenly Northern Illinois played lights out football right when they needed to most. But the thing is, is just like we talked about with Alabama losing, Western Michigan played better. You know, they outgained NIU by nearly 100 yards, had seven more first downs. The defense held the Huskies to one of 13 on third down tries and only committed three penalties. So they were even disciplined in that regard. And they still lost and missed their chance to win the MAC. Um, obviously, winning the MAC wasn't going to get them into the group of five race this year, but. Winning a conference championship, especially in a smaller league, is is still a an honor because you don't have the college football playoff and all that swirl around there. You know you'll get to a postseason game, but there's not going to be high stakes in that game. It's truly an exhibition in that regard. Um, so the conference championship is it for most of these programs, and you know Western Michigan had themselves all set up and, and dropped it at that final hurdle. Yeah, and then you got to look at this putting Central Michigan into the MAC championship game, and what a phenomenal job Jim McElwain's done for the Chippewas this season. Coming off a one-win season a year ago, now they're 8-4, and four and they're a six-point favorite at the moment in the MAC title game. So what a amazing turnaround he's done. I think it really just goes to show that he's a good football coach. This wasn't really a good... Uh, fit at Florida having to take over for Will Muschamp was probably difficult. Um, so I, you know, I'm I'm happy for him as a him being the former Alabama offensive coordinator. I've always really rooted for him uh, when he was at Colorado State, even when he went to Florida. Now at Central Michigan, he's done a really good job there. Yeah, I, I think it was really impressive all around. So lucky for the Chippewas that their rival blew it at the end because Western Michigan did hold that head-to-head tiebreaker. And uh, so, yeah, I I was pleasantly surprised uh, just as a casual fan to see chaos reign early before Thanksgiving, uh, but definitely did not see it coming at all. Shifting gears to some some individual players before we uh, go to our first break here, since we have a nice long edition this week, who did you see as the player most deserving of your offensive game ball? I've given him a game ball before, and I've talked about him a lot. One of the most impressive players in the country to me this year has been Lynn Bowden at Kentucky, just for what he's been asked to do for the Wildcats. He's shouldered every single bit of their offensive load for the last six to eight weeks. They've had just been decimated by injuries in the quarterback room. So he's converted from wide receiver to play quarterback. He's not a threat throwing the football. And every team knows that. And it still doesn't matter because coming into their rivalry matchup with Louisville, I think the Cardinals knew he was going to be running the ball 
Didn't matter. He racked up 284 yards on 22 attempts and punched in four touchdowns as Kentucky blew out what turned out to be a good Louisville team this year. Uh, Another surprising squad, 45-13. I don't think it's hard to overstate how good of a job Mark Stoops has done in Lexington. Everyone wanted to talk about last season, how impressive the Wildcats were. This is, to me, unquestionably, with what they lost last year, a better job with the injuries they suffered this year for him to pull out seven wins. And it's all because of Lynn Bowden. I don't know exactly how you put him on the all sec first team this year because of the position. He's obviously not going to go on as a quarterback. All purpose back would make sense to me, but I think he's an all sec first teamer. If, if Joe Burrow didn't exist, he'd have my vote for sec offensive player of the year. He's been that special. I, I agree with you. It's, to see him step up into that expanded role has just been really refreshing. And like you said, he's not a threat to throw the ball. Mikhail Cunningham led uh, in passing for Louisville and was held 6 of 11 for 78 yards, which means Bowden couldn't even get to triple digits throwing the ball, and nobody expected it. But like you said, when you can gain almost 300 yards with your legs— even with everybody keying in on you, you're doing something really special. I'm right there with you on that. Great pick. I actually went uh, up north to the big house for my pick. Um, Ohio State has a trio of players that in any given year would be right there in the Heisman race. Um, Chase Young is obviously playing really well, best defensive player in the country right now. Uh, Justin Fields uh, had his mini Heisman moment, having the injury scare and then coming right back and throwing a touchdown pass as soon as he steps back on the field. But for my money, J.K. Dobbins is the best player on that team. And what he does for that offense is just astounding he he gets my game ball this week for the way he took over on the field at in ann arbor ran 31 times for 211 yards and four touchdowns on the ground against a michigan defense that statistically has been really quite good this season um also caught two passes for 49 yards and in the end accounted for 45 percent of all of Uh, Ohio State's offense against the Wolverines so lights out performance by him and uh, just to shift gears quick I'm I'm just going to throw my defensive uh, game ball out there right away I I hate to do it John but I got to talk about Auburn one more time because what Zacoby McClain did uh, at linebacker for the Tigers was really quite impressive Obviously, he had that 100-yard interception return on what was just a really wild play all around. Um, But beyond that, he was all over the field all game long. Led Auburn in tackles with 11, had six solo, had a tackle for loss. So he was, you know, he was contributing in both the pass defense, the run defense really well, and, um, you know... His touchdown was one of the things that flipped the script and allowed Auburn to come away with that victory. So I I had to do it. He he definitely earned it this week. I mean, the pick six there is the difference in the game. Alabama scores a touchdown there. We're talking about a whole different thing. Alabama probably wins that football game 
that's a 14 point swing right there. So yeah, that's a it's a good pick, great play. I don't want to talk about it anymore. So I'll move on. I I decided to be nice to you and not pick a rival player. So I went with Zach Bond, the linebacker for Wisconsin, who you know really you could give the game ball the entire Wisconsin defense. I came away just super impressed. We talked about earlier in the year this being one of the best defenses in, defenses in the country. They regressed a little bit in certain areas, but when they had to play lights out football, they delivered on Saturday against Minnesota to clinch a spot in the Big Ten championship game. And like you said, keep their chances for a Rose Bowl berth alive, even if they can't beat Ohio State in the Big Ten title game. Uh, He had nine tackles, five of which were solo. He had a couple sacks and two and a half tackles for loss. Wisconsin's defense really lived in the backfield all game. They ended up with five total sacks, eight tackles for loss. Minnesota just couldn't really generate a lot of offense. Like you said earlier, they couldn't run the ball. They had 30 carries for 76 yards, which meant Tanner Morgan had to do everything. And he threw for 296 yards, but he wasn't really efficient, only 20 of 37 passing. Um, so really impressive performance by Wisconsin as a, as a whole defensively, and Bond gets my game ball for leading the charge. Yeah, I think Vaughn is a great pick there, and uh, now I feel kind of bad for the way I threw mine, but not too bad because, like I said, McLean earned it as well. On that note, everybody, we're going to take our first quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the coaching carousel a bit before we get into championship week because Black Monday put some heads on the chopping block. So... Uh, We'll be right back after this quick break for more conversation. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody. We're here to talk about the coaching carousel now in college football. Obviously, after the regular season ends, it's time for programs that didn't have the season that they were hoping for to turn into different directions. And we've definitely seen that happen so far. On top of the three pl- or four coaches that were terminated in the middle of the season, we saw eight more heads roll on Monday as uh, as people were let go. Uh, actually, one you know a couple of those did happen on Sunday, and uh, we even saw Barry Odom let go on Saturday. So you know we have basically twelve spots that had opened up. And we've seen two of them already get filled. Greg Schiano's headed back to Rutgers uh, to try to rework the magic he did when they were still in the Big East, now that they're in the Big Ten East. Um, We also saw a really surprising one on the opposite side of the country in Washington. I, you know, this is really where I want to start talking because I don't think anybody saw this happening. Obviously, it's not the season that people were expecting in Seattle with uh, the Huskies regressing back to the mean in the Pac-12 North and really, you know, falling out of contention by October. But this is still a coach that led them to the New Year's Six each of the past three years and had them in the playoff as recently as three years ago. So... On that note, I you know, obviously I think having the succession plan in place and handing over the reins to defensive coordinator Jimmy Lake is uh, really great for Washington. It sets them up with a coach who's, you know, allows for some continuity in the system. 
and ostensibly Chris Peterson is going to be staying on as an advisor with the program, but just really wild to see. Um, totally took me aback. If we're talking about surprises, that was it right there. Yeah, I mean, that was absolutely stunning. Um, remains to be seen how long Chris Peterson stays retired. He's still only 55 years old. That coaching itch, if you've talked to, if anyone's ever talked to any older coaches and stuff, that never goes away. We've seen a ton of coaches leave and then come back. I think there's a really good chance for it. Now every offseason for the next decade or so until he comes back, uh, we'll hear his name floated around in every rumor for every big opening that that comes to pass. That was definitely surprising. Um, perhaps the most unfortunate termination, though, was Matt Luke from Ole Miss, who was actually on a recruiting trip in a recruit's living room when he found out that he was terminated. Uh, my guess is whoever, whatever recruit that was, Ole Miss probably won't land him because of that. That would be my guess. I don't think I'd want to go to that school if that happened. So that was, you know, that's like Lane Kiffin getting fired on the tarmac at USC. Maybe even worse, to be honest, and I didn't know it got worse than that. Um, I was also that surprised that Boston College decided to move on from Steve Adazio after the Eagles clinched bowl eligibility this past weekend with a win. Uh, I'm not really sure what that program's expecting this day and age. I think the Doug Flutie days are obviously well gone, so that one surprised me a little bit. Um, what are... In terms of who you think, I guess, the big names that are out there, obviously Urban Meyer is out there. That's the one that keeps getting floated around if USC does make a decision to move on from Clay Helton, which has been rumored, uh, still kind of up in the air at this point. But some of the, I guess, group of five coaches and some of that, who do you think is the biggest name out there for some of these openings other than Urban Meyer, obviously? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, Meyer's going to get mentioned um, Bob Stoops always comes up and now Chris Peterson, like you said, is going to be a name that comes up every year with these three coaches that are still in their fifties, but looking down the ranks a bit, um, obviously the, the seasons that Mike Norvell has had at Memphis the past few years is, uh, that's going to have his name in the discussion at a lot of places, uh, especially their fairly fairly close to Memphis at places like Ole Miss at Arkansas. Um, also with Florida Atlantic getting back to their second Conference USA championship in the past three years, Lane Kiffin's name is going to come up again. Um, the, the ultimate Teflon coach, uh, it, it seems like he just keeps, you know, bouncing back. Absolutely nothing sticks to him. So... I see that possibly happening. Um, Willie Taggart being gone at Florida State, there's been some talk about whether South Florida would bring him back as like a Shiano-type replacement. Um, I think that's a... I, I'm a little skeptical about that actually happening. Um, but, you know, I think his name's going to be back out there because people recognize what he was left with at Florida State when when Jimbo Fisher bolted Tallahassee and they've seen the way he's worked reclamation projects at Western Kentucky and at South Florida. So I think his name will definitely come up as well in the discussion. Um, some other coaches sort of down the ranks uh, as well. Uh, Brian Harson at Boise State 
just like we've you know we saw with Chris Peterson for years as the Broncos have one good season after another as a Mountain West contender he'll continue to be there uh, uh as a name that gets floated and then Luke Fickle at Cincinnati I think the way he did is you know the way he worked things out as well was really impressive um but from what I've heard um you know, his, one of his dream jobs is Michigan State. So I think in a way he's almost holding out for them to, to, to move on from Mark D'Antonio and waiting for his retirement before he bolts from a group of five school. Yeah, you know, he's got options, obviously. Sometimes the best thing to do is wait. Chris Peterson did that for years at Boise State. He had overtures from numerous schools before finding the right landing spot um, at Washington. I think it's interesting you mentioned Willie Taggart. Uh, I think he's another Jim McElwain in a way we talked about earlier. I think he's a good coach and just wasn't a perfect fit at Florida State. And maybe he was. I, You know, if you look back at what he did at Western Kentucky, what he did at South Florida, those weren't quick turnarounds, but they were turnarounds after a few years. They were rebuilding jobs, though, and I don't think Florida State fans were really patient enough with Taggart. I think eventually he would have got them kind of rolling forward. So that's an interesting opening. If I'm Florida State personally, Lane Kiffin's the guy I'm calling because he's going to recruit really well. He's going to run fun offenses. He's going to put butts in the stadium seats. I, you know, I, I made this case last year when Miami had the opening that Kiffin should be the guy they called. Uh, I kind of hope no one does because my pipe dream is that he's Nick Saban's replacement at Alabama, and I've gotten a lot of flack from that from fellow Alabama fans. But my thoughts has always been that Alabama is never going to replicate the success they've had under Saban because it's been a ridiculous run. So we might as well have some fun. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, bring me Kiffin. Let's have fun. Let's win nine or ten games a year. Let's run up the score in the Iron Bowl. Like, let's just, you know, let's enjoy it. You know what I mean? An underrated guy – Zach, that I'm kind of surprised isn't getting a lot of talk is Bill Clark at UAB. You know, the Blazers are back in the Conference USA Championship game again for the second straight year. This will be their third consecutive bowl appearance after, you know, having the program shut down for a season. Just a remarkable job, a hell of a football coach. If I was a program like Arkansas or Ole Miss that has an opening right now, he'd be at the top or near the very top of my list. Um, I, I'm very surprised that he's, he's not a name that really hasn't been floated that much so far, but I think he'd be a really good fit at, fit at one of those schools because he knows how to take a team that doesn't necessarily have the most talent in the world, but he knows how to scheme up and win football games. And you're never going to get Alabama or LSU or even Auburn type talent at Arkansas or probably Ole Miss either. So you need to find a coach who can take his and beat yours or take yours and beat his. A kid, a coach who's going to be able to, to you know, have schematic advantages and know how to win games. And to me, that's Bill Clark. I, I don't understand really why he's not a name that's getting more traction. You know, still early in the process. Maybe he will down the line. But he would be a, a hell of a consolation prize if some of these top options don't pan out. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really smart choice as well. Another one I found interesting was a coach who actually resigned and would be a good fit at another school as well. And that's Bobby Wilder, who left Old Dominion after 10 seasons when he was the architect of that program. They've never had another head coach. Uh, and over his 10 years there, he went 77 and 56. Um, 
and you know helped guide them in their transition up to the FBS. And in six seasons, he's taken them to a bowl game, uh, won that bowl game, and at a place like Old Dominion to be, you know, without any football transition to be able to generate that, I think he, you know, he's only fifty-five as well. He's the exact same age as Chris Peterson, so if he wants to come back to the coaching ranks, he certainly has some, you know, the opportunity to do so. But, you know, you one thing I want to just kind of come back to as well, you mentioned this idea that sometimes the best thing to do is sit and wait. At the same time, that can really bite you in the ass. Let's look at Seth Luttrell, for instance. You know, at North Texas last year, he, he had a great season with the Mean Green, was sort of that it coach that everybody was talking about for several openings. And this year, he's firing both of his coordinators and starting from scratch after, you know, a really disappointing season that, you know, didn't live up to the hype. So, I, you know, I I think obviously coaches have to know when the time is right. Not everybody's going to get, you know, have a magical run like Chris Peterson where you get to sit there and just wait for the right opportunity to finally fall into your lap. Uh, you don't always get that luxury. So jumping when you do get a paycheck, I totally understand it from coaches, even, you know, especially from those smaller ranks. Uh, and, and that's why I think it's always smart to look at who are those coaches that are, are doing damage in the group of five ranks. I mean, it's a good point. You wonder how much of Luttrell's success should be attributed to Graham Harrell, who left North Texas to take over as USC's, offensive coordinator and obviously the Trojans offense hummed even when they were down to their third string quarterback they were still putting points on the board so that's interesting he could be a name that's potentially in play for maybe one of these group of five openings that you know ends up turning up when you know some of these guys jump to these bigger jobs because you got to know that some of those are going to happen so definitely going to be an interesting story to follow the rest of the carousel one of my favorite times of the year is seeing the swaps and everything. There's always something unexpected that happens. Uh, obviously, Chris Peterson's resignation was the one this year, I would think. If something else more shocking happens the rest of the offseason in terms of the coaching carousel, it's going to be a bombshell because that was as shocking as anything as I can remember. Yeah, yeah. A coach that, well, and especially because of the way the season ended for Washington. You know, if he was going out on top, and just said, you know, I'm tired. I I want to leave where I have this program on its highest note possible. You know, if he'd done it last season, I would totally get it. Doing it this year when they've really had that downswing and it has been a disappointing year for the Huskies, given all the expectations that are there around that program and that are there because of Chris Peterson. Like, and... and so, yeah, I mean, on one hand, he didn't live up to those expectations. And on the other hand, it's I'm really skeptical that this is the last we'll see him on the sideline because of it. Yeah, I mean, look at where Washington was before Peterson got there. They weren't a team that was competing for Pac-12 championships. You know, they were a program that had really struggled over the last uh, bit. And he really built that program back up. It'll be interesting if Jimmy Lake can replicate what... Um, Lincoln Riley's done with Oklahoma when Bob Stoops resigned. If 
you know, Peterson's trained him well enough. Obviously, Lake's a really good defensive coordinator. Washington's always had really good defenses since he's been there. He's been a hot commodity for potential jobs as a defensive coordinator at other places. I know Alabama made some overtures at him a few years ago. So, obviously, I think he had a feeling or was just flat out told by Peterson that that was going to be his job soon. And, you know, it's interesting. We're seeing more coaches leave early. You know, coaching's very stressful. It takes a lot out of you. You've seen health scares with coaches like Urban, like Urban Meyer um, and Bob Stoops from his own family. His dad having health issues as a coach, I believe, had a heart attack on the sideline as a football coach and died early because of it. So, you know, that kind of stress and the long hours, I don't think everyone really appreciates how many hours these coaches log? They're psychopaths when it comes to working because they, if they're not in the office watching film, they know that their competition is. So they feel like at all times they've got to be breaking down film. They've got to be calling recruits. There's no real off time, especially during the season. So that's got to wear on you. And you're starting to see it a lot like you're starting to see more NFL players retire earlier, starting to see more football coaches step away early on in their careers. Peterson obviously has got miles left. Meyer does. Stoops did. I mean, it's it's very surprising, particularly when you look at how successful all three of those coaches have been over their careers. So it will be interesting to see if they come back, because like we talked about before, that itch just never really goes away for these guys. No, it really doesn't, unless that itch is taken away from you by the, the athletic department. Um. And yeah, I mean, that's what we're seeing this time of year. Obviously, developments are still happening. And I I think we're at 12 now. There's still 10 openings around the country. And I'd be surprised if we didn't see a couple more open up before all is said and done. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely fascinating to follow the rest of the way. On that note, everybody, we're going to take our second break here. Uh, When we come back, we're going to shift gears, get ourselves into championship weekend mode, uh, start thinking about the big games, beginning with the Power 5 championships. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with those after the break. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're shifting gears from Thanksgiving week action and Black Monday in the coaching ranks to talk about championships. Because ultimately, that's what we built up the entire regular season for, to see who can come out on top in their respective leagues. We're going to be looking at the Power Five in this segment, and in the next segment, we'll shift gears and look at the Group of Five competitions. But let's start with the game that's happening on Friday night in Santa Clara, John. Oregon will be heading down to the Bay Area along with Utah, Uh, to see which one of these teams can emerge triumphant in the Pac-12 this year. Obviously, the Ducks, after that Week 13 loss to Arizona State, kept this from being a de facto college football playoff quarterfinal. But, you know, I think these teams are really well-matched. And the fact that Utah comes in as only a three-point favorite, uh, you know, the lowest... Uh, point spread that we see among all of the Power 5 championship games right now is really a testament to the balance between these two teams. I got to ask you, I, I obviously have some thoughts about this game, but what do you see happening here uh, out on the West Coast on Friday night? 
I think this has a shot to be maybe the best um, of the conference championship games, regardless of Oregon's defeat. I think you're right about these teams being really evenly matched. Statistically speaking, offensively, they're almost the exact same. I think they're one yard difference on offense. They're both really balanced. They both have quarterbacks who can throw the football, also can run the football on a bench, and they both have dynamic running games. Um, just for me, man, Utah has been just flat out dominant for most of the season. If you look at how they rack up over the last six weeks, they've been as good as any team in the country uh, through October and November. They've been just flat out brilliant on both sides of the ball. I think their ability to take away Oregon's running game is going to be huge. The Utes give up 56 yards per game on the ground, which is just honestly absurd. Like, Oregon has a good running defense as well. They only give up 106 yards, but that's still a massive difference between the two sides when you look at it. I've just been so impressed by Utah. I think their balance, I think Oregon's defense is good, but I also think the Ducks have shown a few flaws on that side of the ball against a few teams in recent weeks. So I think Utah finds some stuff they can take advantage of. I expect Tyler Huntley to play really well. I think Utah is just slightly better, to be honest, and I think they're going to clinch a spot in the college football playoff in Santa Clara. Ended up winning this game, covering the spread by just a small margin. I think it'll be pretty low scoring, to be honest. Something like 24-20 in favor of Utah, I think, makes sense for me. But I, I'll take the Utes. Um, and I hate to say it because, I, I, you know, I'll be honestly rooting for the Ducks to do it because, you know, I, I think over the years of us kind of – talking and being friends and everything like that we developed some rooting abilities for our for the others teams and I've always kind of appreciated the Ducks always watch them I also like Mariel Cristobal a lot but I'm going to take Utah here I think they're among the four best teams in the country and I think they deserve a spot in the playoffs as much as my heart wants to say it's the Ducks are going to cruise in this one I've watched Utah play enough times this season I'm right there with you that that running defense basically is the whole question about it. Can CJ can can Verdell and Travis Dye figure them out? That's really the whole question of this game. Obvious, because Oregon does not play well when their running game does not go well. And we've seen that with Justin Herbert in the past. Um... You know, I think he's still a great NFL prospect, but we've seen some really suspect throws from him over the past month, especially. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that they're just not playing enough of a balanced game and really leaning on their running backs enough. And they're going to have to do that at Levi's Stadium if they want to have any chance of beating Utah. Obviously, I'm right there with you. The defense is on both sides are really would have made these teams as much as their really explosive offensives have. And it's a testament to the fact that the Pac-12 is not just about offense, or at least winning the Pac-12 requires more than just offense. Um, as much as I hate to do it, I obviously want to pick Oregon. I'd love to see Oregon win. But at the same time, the Ducks are going to the Rose Bowl pretty much no matter what happens in this game. There's no other team that would replace the Pac-12 champion besides the, the losing team in this game. Um, and ob obviously, if Utah wins, they have a really great shot of getting into the playoff rather than going to Pasadena. So 
as much as I hate to do it, I'll obviously be rooting for Oregon on Saturday. I'll be rooting to be wrong on this pick, but I'm with you. I think it's going to be a close one. I think Oregon pushes Utah to the limit, but a late touchdown pass by Tyler Huntley is going to allow Utah to cover 28-24. Wow. All right. Well, that's good for you, though, because we both picked Utah, which means Oregon's obviously going to win. Exactly. Maybe I ha- maybe I'm playing the long game here, everybody. Well, let's shift gears to the second game of the week because uh, this one also has implications to go along with what happens in Santa Clara. If the Utes win and Oklahoma, it really comes down to Oklahoma or Baylor versus the Utes. Uh, for that four spot, or it will be one of the big conversations for that four spot. I shouldn't, you know, I project the college football playoff rankings every week, and I still have a hard time getting into the heads of those selectors. So I hate to say anything definitive about it, but, you know, the last time these teams played, it was really a tale of two halves. Baylor cruised to a big lead, looked like they were ready to just stomp on Oklahoma. And then the Sooners engineer the biggest comeback in school history to end up escaping Waco. Uh, Oklahoma comes into this game as a nine and a half point favorite at AT AT&T Stadium. Uh, The Sooners obviously have the better offense. Baylor has the better defense. We're going to see strength on strength. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see how Jalen Hurts responds. Um, as somebody who's obviously seen him play in pressure situations before, what do you think is going to happen in this game, John? I think Jalen Hurts is going to do what Jalen Hurts does in those pressure situations. That's ball out. I mean, we saw it in the second half of that Baylor game earlier this year. Maybe the most defining moment of his career was in the SEC championship game last season when you replaced an injured Tua Tungavailoa came off the bench cold, led Alabama back from a 28-21 deficit to -to back-to-back touchdown drives to clinch a playoff berth in the SEC championship. So my expectation is that he's going to play really well. But what I like from Lincoln Riley is that last week he finally figured out they've got to figure out some balance on the offensive side of the ball. I think they were putting too much on Jalen's shoulders uh, throughout the entire season. And last week against, you know, rival Oklahoma State and Bedlam, they – deferred to Kennedy Brooks a good bit on the ground and he rewarded them with you know 160 plus yards and a couple of touchdowns he ran the ball 22 times Hertz only ran the ball 16 times which is still a lot for a quarterback but he had been having 20 plus carries a, a game pretty much every week of the season so I like the fact that Oklahoma figured out some balance last week really didn't struggle against a really quality Oklahoma State team I picked Oklahoma to to roll over Baylor in the regular season. That obviously didn't happen. I'm going to stick to my guns, though, because I'm a stubborn asshole, and I'm going to go with Oklahoma again uh, by a couple of touchdowns. I think Baylor will keep it close for the first half, but I like Jalen Hurst to make a couple plays. You know Lincoln Riley is going to keep his foot on the gas, too, because if nothing else, the Sooners need some style points. A close win over Baylor I don't think would be enough to lift them over Utah if the Utes knock off um, – Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game. So look for Oklahoma, I think, to come out and and with something to prove. I got the Sooners 45-31 over the Bears. Well, hey, look at this, everybody. We finally have some disagreement. Because, honestly, 
the Sooners got lucky in that first game, and I don't think they're going to get that lucky this second time. Baylor's defense is legit, and if they get the chance to play with a lead again, they're not going... You mentioned Oklahoma's not going to let their foot off the gas. That Baylor defense is going to be in that exact same mentality coming into this game. Um, I think Charlie Brewer has a great game. I think you're going to see Jamichael Hasty have a couple of really big runs against an Oklahoma defense that is okay. <laughs> it is not obviously the heart of this program's success. Uh, so I think that's going to be a big surprise for everybody. I think Baylor gets a lead. I think they don't let Oklahoma generate a comeback this time. And I think the Bears cover as underdogs and take the Big 12 outright. I, I think we both agreed that the Bears are going to score 31 points, but I think they're going to hold Oklahoma to 27. Interesting. I will say that I, you know, the talk about Baylor's defense has been pretty good. Oklahoma statistically has the better defense, though, in yards per game allowed. So I think it's interesting that the narrative has been that the Sooners' defense hasn't been very good because they started out the year on fire. I mean, everybody was talking about Alex Grinch potentially being a Broyles Award um, winner. Obviously, Joe Brady is going to win that award. I don't think there's any ambiguity about that at this point, but. I think the Sooners have played better on defense. They held a really quality Oklahoma State offense to 16 points last week, too. So, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe Baylor comes out and plays crazy. I think we're probably both in agreement, though, that it'll take a Utah loss for either of these two teams to get in the playoff, though. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely the case. As much as the Big 12 will cry foul about it again. You know, the Pac-12 has been in that exact same situation in the playoff discussion. So I, I think the committee would defer to Utah in that regard because as much as we're debating whether Baylor's defense or Oklahoma's defense is actually the better one, Utah blows them both out of the water. So, And they have the offense to, to hang right within Oklahoma as well. So... So, yeah, I, I think the committee would definitely go that way. Yeah, clearly the committee has Pac-12 bias, as Oklahoma or Baylor fans will be screaming after Selection Sunday. It's been that way since 2014. Just absolutely <laughs> ridiculous bias for the Pac-12. Oh, man, that West Coast bias, everybody. <laughs> well, let's shift back east for Game 3 of the Power 5 Championships. The SEC has been playing uh, this game since 1992, obviously the first conference to implement the conference championship game, and this year it's Georgia and LSU getting to face off. Uh, the Tigers come into this game undefeated, uh, four-point favorite against Georgia, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, probably in the college football playoff, no matter what happens in this game, um, I, I think the only thing that could keep them out is like a 56 nothing shutout that just completely embarrasses them at that final opportunity. Uh, I personally don't think it's going to play out like that. Uh, so I, I think LSU is pretty safe here. Um, but do you think they'll actually walk away with the SEC title and uh, keep their record perfect going into the postseason? I think this will, without a doubt, be the best defense LSU has faced all season long. Georgia's defense is obviously legit. That's the 
the strength of the Bulldogs team is on that side of the ball. But I, I worry about Georgia's offense's ability to keep up in this game. As good as Georgia's defense is, I don't think it's possible to keep Joe Burrow and the LSU offense down all game. And the big worry is that Georgia could be down two of their biggest playmakers. DeAndre Swift's got an injury. He's going to be questionable for the game. And George Pickens, who's been their best receiver this year, threw a punch against Georgia Tech last week. He's going to miss the first half of this game. Really, really unfortunate for the Bulldogs because they haven't been that good on that side of the ball this season. So I think a lot's going to be on Jake Fromm's shoulders. I think LSU's unafraid of him, so I think they're going to load the box and force him to make plays. We've obviously seen Jake Fromm make plenty of plays in these kind of games before. He played really well in the SEC championship game last year. He played really well in the national championship game against Alabama as well uh, the year before that. So I just think with those uncertainties around Georgia's offense that I think this game could get away from them quickly. And if it does, if LSU is able to do what they've done all year and that score quickly and in a hurry in the first quarter, I just don't think Georgia has enough offense to fight back in this game. Uh, it's not really an offense that's built to play from behind. They haven't really had to do that a lot this year. So LSU has been the best team in the SEC all season long. They're one of the two or three best teams in the country this year. I think Burrow, if he hasn't already clinched the Heisman Trophy, which I think he has, is going to have another shining moment in Atlanta. LSU rolls over Georgia. I got the Tigers 34-17 in this game. I think they'll jump on them early and, and roll to an SEC championship victory. I have it 44-17 LSU. So um, I, I, I think we both agree that Georgia's offense is going to, to, to struggle against LSU. And... Um, if they hadn't done what they did against Texas A&M last week, I might be a little bit more skeptical about that happening. But And also, like you mentioned, I think if Swift and Pickens were absolutely healthy, I'd be a little more skeptical about that happening. But especially with the potential that Swift might not be at 100% really puts the onus on, on Jake Fromm. And... Uh, you know, I that shoulder injury is going to be really huge, and how well uh, he's able to function on the field if he indeed does suit up. Obviously, Kirby Smart's been downplaying this all week and 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 making making it no issue, but there was obviously some kind of issue in in that that regular season finale against the Yellow Jackets when he came out of the game. On the other side of the ball, obviously Joe Burrow's got the potential for another huge game, even playing against Georgia's seventh-ranked pass efficiency defense. Uh, he's just too good. The X factor for me is whether Clyde Ed Edwards-Hilaire comes out and is able to find running lanes against the second-best rushing defense in the country. Uh, Georgia's behind only Utah in terms of the, the yardage they allow to opponents on the ground. And um, I think if they didn't have a quarterback like Burrow who was playing lights out, this game looks really close. But yeah, like I said, you know, I think it plays out a lot. Like you said, LSU just gets that fire under them right away and doesn't let Georgia ever get back into the contest. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, if maybe there wasn't the question marks around those playmakers, maybe this ends up being a closer game. Again, I think LSU's in the playoff regardless, unless you said it's a 56 nothing game. So Georgia's probably going to the Sugar Bowl at worst, though. So, I mean, still a good year for the Bulldogs. But if they win, they'll get into the playoff as well. So definitely a lot on the line for, for Georgia, especially in this game. But LSU's just been a team on a mission all year. And I just can't see them slipping up here. Yeah, I, I think at this point it would it would be one one of the biggest upsets of the entire season to see it flip in Georgia's favor. Moving on to the fourth game, a uh, little bit later in the day, we see Ohio State and Wisconsin getting their rematch, um, and you know. It, it, this is a game where Wisconsin is obviously going to come in as a huge underdog. Right now, they're sitting at plus 18 in the point spread. Um, so, obviously, Vegas doesn't have much confidence in this Badgers squad being able to gain revenge in their second time around against the Buckeyes. Um But do you think there's any chance that they even come close to playing Ohio State this week? No. (laughs) I don't want to be, like, I want to say yes for your sake, but I think Ohio State's the best team in the country. I've been tooting that horn all season long. I think the Buckeyes are better than everyone else. I think they're better than LSU. I think they're better than Clemson. I think they're the most well-balanced team out there. Um, Just what they're able to do offensively with Fields throwing the ball or running it with Dobbins in the backfield, who's, kind of quietly rushed for 1,657 yards this season without getting a ton of recognition. And then obviously Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, and that dynamic defense the Buckeyes have. I think Jack Cohn's going to have to play a perfect game for the Badgers to have any shot because you know Ohio State's going to focus in on Jonathan Taylor and shutting down the Wisconsin running game. So it's going to take Cohn playing even better than he played last week against Minnesota. He's going to have to go out there and basically pitch a perfect game for Wisconsin to stay competitive. I just don't see that happening. You know, it's been a good year for the Badgers, a nice bounce-back year for those guys. They're Like you said, they've got a really good shot of going to the Rose Bowl. It probably comes down to Wisconsin and Penn State, which, you know, leaves you conflicted because obviously you got the Badgers' roots, but people in Happy Valley might string you up if you're not, you know, rooting for the Nittany Lions to take that berth in Pasadena. So, I think Ohio State wins this game. I honestly don't expect it to be all that close because I think the Buckeyes are just better. It'll be closer than the regular season regular season battle in Columbus, but I like Ohio State 35-14. Okay, so you see them covering. Excellent. Um, you know, I, I, I think there are a couple of factors that Wisconsin can can put in a place to give themselves a chance. I, I think it's going to be really hard for them to win this game. I'm with you there that the Buckeyes have just been steamrolling good teams and bad all season long. And they've just been playing too too good on both sides of the ball. Um, obviously, J.K. Dobbins is a huge one to watch for in this game after he ran for 163 yards and two touchdowns against the Badgers and added three catches for 58 yards out of the backfield to finish with well over 200 all-purpose yards. Um, And yeah, the Ohio State defense at the same time came out and 
you know, held Wisconsin under 200 total yards of offense in October in Columbus. The one question, though, is how healthy is Justin Fields? You know, he's had the MCL sprain that was re-aggravated last week. And, you know, while he came back into the game and had that really inspiring finish for the Buckeyes, when you've messed up your MCL twice in two weeks, first against Penn State and then re-aggravated it in that finale against Michigan, the the risk of it happening again is that much higher. And I think you're going to see Wisconsin's defense, the way they've been playing the past couple weeks, really try to key in on him and not let him be mobile, really force him, you know, try to flush him out and make him move on that as much as possible. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Ohio State does survive in advance. I, I would be shocked to see them lose this game. I'd be pleasantly shocked, obviously, but I'd be shocked to see them win this game. However, I'm confident in that Wisconsin defense having figured out some things after that first embarrassment at the horseshoe. Um, I think they cover the spread, but I think in the end, this one ends up like 31-20 in the Buckeyes' favor. I think Ohio State's also in the same boat as LSU. Like, I think the Buckeyes are probably in the playoff, even if they lose the Big Ten championship game, Uh, particularly with Alabama losing last week in the Iron Bowl. That removed a wild card out of the equation. So I don't think it takes a win to get them in. They're probably already in. I love what you said about Fields, too, because if you're Wisconsin in that scenario, you put pressure on him and make him prove he's healthy, right? Like, you make him prove that he can get out of the pocket and make plays. Um, and if not, you can get some pressure on him. Maybe make he can make some mistakes because he throws quick. So be interesting. I think, you know, we're both in agreement, obviously, that Ohio State wins. And to me, they're probably the favorite to end up winning it all. So it'll be interesting to see if Wisconsin's defense can really keep the Badgers in this game. Yeah, that's really the the factor. Like, how well Wisconsin's defense plays versus October. Moving on to the last Power 5 contest, I think this is the one that everybody sees as the most lopsided contest out of the bunch. Uh, Virginia obviously has the feel-good story as the seventh representative out of the Coastal in the past seven years trying to break down Atlantic supremacy, but Clemson comes in as the defending college football playoff national champion, the defending ACC champion for the past couple years, and they come in as a 21 and a half point underdog to Charlotte. Uh, do you think Bryce Perkin and do you think that Bryce Perkins and the Cavaliers uh, can realistically keep this within three touchdowns, John? No, <laughs> I'm gonna go short answer. No, no, I don't. I, uh, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see an outright upset just so Dabo Sweeney can cry more about little old Clemson. I love hearing those press press conferences every week where he thinks the world is against his team. That's won two out of the last three national championships. At what point does it become just absolutely absurd that he keeps saying little old Clemson, like Clemson hasn't been one of the two most dominant programs of the last five years. I mean, it's it's ridiculous at this point to hear those interviews with him. Honestly, borderline embarrassing for him at this point. He should understand you're the top dog at this point. you got to start reacting differently. I'd love to see Virginia go in there and pull the upset. It would be 
just a, it'd be the biggest upset of the season by far, in my opinion, because Clemson's so heavily favored in this game. I just don't see it. Clemson knows that Virginia's offense starts and stops with Bryce Perkins. You just know that defensively the Tigers are going to have a really strong game plan. Game plan. Um, Brent Venables has been the best defensive coordinator in college football for the last few years. He always schemes up something that really um, ends up swinging the game. So I imagine Clemson's defense swarms over Perkins and Virginia struggles to generate much offense at all. Um, Trevor Lawrence, who was kind of mediocre to start the season, really found himself over the last couple of months. Looks like the Trevor Lawrence that ended last season and really makes me believe that Clemson has a legitimate shot at repeating in the in the nat for the national championship this year. It'll be a really fascinating playoff race, to be honest. But Clemson's the one team, Zach, that I don't think is in if they lose. It'll be interesting because I don't know who would jump them. Maybe Oklahoma and Utah both get in if Clemson loses this game just because the Tigers don't have the resume. Um, their best win all season is, what, Texas A&M, who finished 7-5 and five at this point, which, you know, solid win, I guess. But all these other teams have beaten much more quality teams than that at this point in the season. So I don't think it's going to be an issue, though. Clemson wins this game pretty easily. I, I see something 38-7 probably in favor of Clemson. They cover the spread pretty easily. I just imagine their defense. Isaiah Simmons is one of my favorite defensive players in the country with his versatility in that Clemson front seven playing linebacker, sometimes dropping back and being so good in coverage as well. I think he'll have a big game, and then Clemson's offense clicks all all game long like they have for the last couple of months. So Clemson rolls gets into the playoff without ever really being tested. I'm going to I'm going to go a little I'm going to veer a little bit here because over the years I've seen the ACC Championship game yield up some surprises. Not necessarily outright upsets, but we've seen some heavy favorites come in and just struggle to put away teams in the past. You know, I think about Clemson against North Carolina 4 years ago. Uh, the you know the year before that, Florida State as the defending national champion really struggled with Georgia Tech and won by only two. Um, and so I I think this is going to be an interesting contest. Virginia's coming in playing with house money. They know that there's you know after Wake Forest lost, there's really nobody else who's going to represent the ACC in the Orange Bowl. They pretty much have that spot locked down. Um, and so, in that regard, they can just throw caution to the wind. And with that, those are sometimes the most dangerous teams to get trapped against. And so, while I think Clemson, you're absolutely right. Trevor Lawrence, the past month especially, has snapped out of his sophomore slump. He's playing like the quarterback we expected all season long when he came in as a preseason Heisman favorite. Um, Bryce Perkins has obviously had great games in the recent past, you know, none better than that Virginia Tech game. So he's coming in supremely confident as well. Obviously, he's going to be playing a defense unlike any he's seen yet this year. Um in the end, obviously, Clemson has the top five scoring offense, top five scoring defense, and a top five, you know, offense and defense in terms of yards generated and yards allowed. Um, 
the Tigers have given away only 16 points in the last three games of the regular season, and they haven't coughed up more than 20 all year long. I think this is the time that they finally do that and have their one little hiccup before they go back onto their dominant ways in the playoff. Um, And so I think Virginia keeps this one really interesting. I think Clemson ends up winning by single digits, 38-31. I'd love to see it. I mean, it would be fascinating. I mean, obviously, I think we're both in agreement that it would be fascinating to see Virginia win that game outright. Um, But like you said, Virginia already pretty much sealed up a bit in the Orange Bowl, which is funny because... They're gonna. Their reward for beating Virginia Tech is to get to play probably some Alabama and then Georgia to open next season in a row. So great job getting that 15 year winning losing broken. Now you get to play three powerhouses in a row. Yeah, you know, but you you go to play you know good teams. If you want to be a good team, that's exactly what you're striving to do. And Bronco Mendenhall wants this to be a good team, and he's certainly got them right to that point um, where they're on the cusp of greatness. On that note, everybody, we'll be back to talk about the group of five games here in just a second, and also the garbage that we dealt out on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, But before we do that, we're going to take this quick break. Uh, We'll be back in just a minute. Stay tuned. Welcome back for our final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We just finished up talking about the five Power 5 championship games against the spread. Uh, So soon we'll be turning to the group of five championship games. Uh, Before we do, though, uh, let's look back quick at Thanksgiving weekend quickly. Uh, We always like to look at the garbage we dealt out just to sort of clear out the mojo as we're making our picks for this week. Uh, Last week, I only went three and four. So uh, maybe you want to stick with John's picks this week. He'll talk to you about that in a second. I missed on Virginia Tech, Cincinnati, and Boise State. Uh, Not necessarily uh, banner week for me, but I think the big mistake I made was discounting Lyndon Bowden, who we've already talked about in this podcast this week and throughout the season since he took over the quarterback position at Kentucky. You know, I, I I mentioned coming into that game that Louisville was looking like a team inspired. They had finally looked like they were starting to get themselves back onto a good footing, uh, especially heading into next season. But Lynn Bowden crushed them. 284 rushing yards and four touchdowns. I I said Louisville would win by a touchdown as a three-point underdog. Instead, they got blown out by 32. That That was the biggest garbage that I tried to feed everybody last week. So my apologies... We'll try to get it right this week, everybody. Um, But for those of you who took Louisville plus three, I'm really sorry. I had a a few that went awry. Um, Obviously, I picked Washington State to finally end their Apple Cup curse and upset Washington. Once again, that didn't go very well. So the one that I picked that I didn't really believe in, and I only did it because you picked Auburn, I picked Minnesota to beat Wisconsin. And that because I also believe Wisconsin's going to win that game. But after you picked Auburn, I decided to swap it up. Be like, I'm picking Minnesota to go against you. 
just because you went against me in the Iron Bowl. So don't make gambling picks out of pettiness. It's stupid and should not be done. So that's my advice. Yeah, um, looking to get vengeance against a fellow fan uh, usually does not play out well when you're playing against the house. Uh, Vegas picks these spreads pretty logically knowing that emotion will get plenty of better. So try not to make that mistake, everybody. Um, we're doing our best this week not to put too much emotion into this. Obviously, as you saw with me picking against Oregon in the previous segment. But let's move on to some some group of five games now. Because uh, we have five great championship games on that side of the ledger, uh, below the f- Power 5 level, that deserve to be talked about as well. The first one will be Appalachian State hosting Louisiana. And the Mountaineers are a six and a half point favorite after they already beat the Ragin' Cajuns earlier this season in Lafayette. Um, now they obviously get to play them at home at Kid Brewer. Uh, and honestly, at this point, the New Year's Six is still not entirely out of the question for little Appalachian State. Uh, do you think they can at least set themselves up to give the college football playoff selection committee a a hard decision to make on Sunday? I think it would take a blowout, and I don't see them blowing out Louisiana. Obviously, Louisiana performed pretty well in their game against App State in the regular season. They only gave up 17 points. It'll be interesting if Billy Napier can figure out some stuff offensively. He's another name that could be in that coaching carousel as well. He's done a really good job um, down there. So I think App State wins. In the interest of us going a little quicker for these, I got App State, but close. 23-20 Mountaineers, they win, but don't do enough to get into the New Year's Six. Got it. I honestly, I think that after the way these two teams played things out last year, it was a 10-point win uh, for the Mountaineers in the regular season. They won by 11 at home in the championship game. I think we see something similar to that uh, App State just has too good a team. I think they're going to come out inspired, win this one by three touchdowns, uh, 31-10, to claim their second straight Sun Belt title. Moving on to the second game in the group of five, uh, the MAC championship game is happening in Detroit on Saturday. Miami of Ohio, little 7-5 and five Miami of Ohio, will be taking on Central Michigan as a three-point underdog. Do you think the Red Hawks have any chance in this one, John? You know, honestly, I'm like a conference with the most parity all season long. It's hard to get a read on which team's been playing. Central Michigan has done a great job all year. Quentin Dormandy's really performed well, especially over the last couple of weeks at quarterback. So I like Central Michigan to win this game and to cover. Um, I got I got the, the Chippewas 31-21 over Miami, Ohio to get the MAC title. Yeah, you know, it's surprising to have the Red Hawks even in this game, given that they're giving up four more points than they score each outing. And I think we're going to see something similar play out. Central Michigan just has the better offense. I I think this one turns out like 28-20 Central Michigan. In the third game, we've got the Conference USA champion uh, decided in Boca Raton this year. Uh, UAB will be heading uh, east to play Florida Atlantic. 
Uh, the Owls come into this as seven-point favorites. Honestly, I like Florida Atlantic this year. We've talked about both Lane Kiffin and Bill Clark and the coaching jobs they've done at both of these schools, but give me FAU in this one, and I see it turning out like 31-17 in the end. I think they cover, and I think Kiffin gets this team inspired to get him another good job. Yeah, in fact, this UAB team has won nine games. It's just a testament to how good of a coach Bill Clark is, because I don't think this is one of the better Blazers. They've had a lot of close calls. They, they got routed by Southern Miss in November, the best team in the Conference USA. I've kind of thought that all season long. So I think the Owls, I think they roll. The only thing that gives me a little bit of doubt is the fact that there's all this circulation in the coaching carousel with rumors about Kiffin. Is his head going to be there for this game or not? Or is he focused on jobs like Arkansas or Missouri or whatever? But Florida Atlantic's the better team. I think they cover the spread. I, I like Florida Atlantic um, 35-21 over UAB. All right, so we're both looking at two touchdown spreads in that game. The big group of five games, obviously, are the two top conferences in that realm. The earlier of those two games is the re- the instant rematch between Cincinnati and Memphis, uh, playing for the second straight week at the Liberty Bowl in Memphis. Uh, Cincinnati heads right back uh, as a nine and a half point underdog after losing by ten last week. Uh, do you think they have a better showing against the Tigers, or do you think the third time is the charm for Mike Norvell and crew? I think the third time is the charm, but I do think this game will be a little bit closer than it was a week ago. Um, I think both of these teams are pretty evenly matched, so I think it'll come down to the end. I I do think the winner of this game probably has the inside track on the group of five bid, uh, particularly because you're, you've got two really highly ranked teams playing each other. Um, you could probably get more insight on that yourself, but... I think the winner of this game probably gets there, even with the potential of a two-loss Cincinnati, just because the AAC has been so good this year, just so good at the top league. And even on such a quality league, I think you can make the argument that they they finally added to that um, power six that they've been really pushing for this year because it's been that, that good. Ultimately get home, but I think the game at Memphis – I'm 128 over Cincinnati. I think it is close, though. Yeah, in that Memphis-Cincinnati game, um, Cincinnati almost did upset Memphis in Week 14. Uh, Ben Bryant came into that game, his first start replacing Desmond Ritter at quarterback, and was a respectable 20 of 32 in that first start. Obviously, Cincinnati needs to cut down on the turnovers, but... I see this game getting decided by a late field goal one way or the other. Um, I I think it'll probably be Memphis that ends up winning this. Um, But Cincinnati's going to end up covering. These teams are just too close to be looking at a spread that's gone beyond a touchdown, I think, at this point. Final game of championship weekend is that Mountain West championship game as Boise State gets to host Hawaii again on the Smurf turf. Uh, Hawaii earned their way into this game with that 14-11 win over San Diego State, playing a type of football we did not expect from the Rainbow Warriors at all this season, Um, sort of getting away from their high-flying antics that we all expected. 
Um, Boise State's obviously going to come in motivated into this game with a win. Um, I think they do still have a chance to unseat Cincinnati if it is Cincinnati winning the AAC. And that's simply, be you know, you look at wins that uh, Boise State has had, it kind of, it, initially it seems like a down year for the league, but they have a, t- a win against 10-win Air Force, a win against 9-win Hawaii. Uh, both of those teams beat Marshall, it, you know. I think when the, you know, the committee doesn't necessarily look at that transitive property uh, as much as we tend to think that they do. And I think given that they played them at different times of the season, uh, it, it's hard to read too much into the point spread that each put on Marshall. Um, but, you know, you have seven and five Utah State right in there. And they were one, you know, along with App State, they were the only one of these two teams to beat a power five team that's going bowling, uh, you know. Cincinnati obviously has the win over UCLA, but they only finished four and eight. And then both of those teams have wins against division champions, you know, with Boise State beating Hawaii earlier this year and Cincinnati getting the big win against Miami of Ohio, which is honestly to me less impressive. Um, In the end, though, you know, getting back to the Mountain West championship game itself, I I think that Boise State has shown themselves to be really quite resilient as they've gone through Hank Bachmeyer and Chase Cord at quarterback, and now they've been using Jalen Henderson there. Um, I think George Halani has a big game against Hawaii, and they roll with this one 38-17. Yeah, you know, I think Boise State's shown a few chinks in the armor the last few weeks. Um... Colorado, they played a lot closer game against Colorado State last week than I thought they probably would have. Um, they narrowly escaped your Wyoming Cowboys in November as well. We've both been on the Hawaii train since the preseason. I'm not hopping off. I don't think they are going to beat Boise. This game's a little bit closer than the spread would indicate. I've got Boise State winning um, 36-33, so I think the Rainbow Warriors fight, and this is a really competitive game, but I do think Boise State ultimately wins, but I don't think they do quite enough to potentially get into the New Year's Six. I, I, I think that'd be, you know, obviously I think if it does play that close, it, it goes in Cincinnati's favor for sure. Um, so it, it'll be really interesting. At the same time, I think if, Cincinnati plays really close against Memphis and then Hawaii either plays really close against Boise State or shuts out or, you know, or takes down the Broncos. Um, App State does still have a chance as well. You know, they're the only one of these four teams that has two power five victories on their resume, albeit wins against South Carolina and North Carolina. But when you're a Cincinnati team that's bragging about beating UCLA or a Memphis team that's bragging about beating Ole Miss, both of which were 4-8, and eight, you really can't laugh at beating a 4-8 and eight South Carolina team, especially because they can follow that up by saying we also beat an ACC team that is going bowling. Uh, so yeah, I think this one's going to be really interesting. I think the group of five race uh, really does come down to how the final margins happen in these games. 
So I think it's going to be a fun one to watch all Saturday long. You know, this is this is the time of year where you get your last chance to feast everybody. And then we get the long, slow burn of bowl season where you get a couple of games a day, but you don't get any one of these massive days where there's a reason why I have three TVs in my basement to watch them all at once. Uh, so, you know, you'll only need to have one of them on at a time or at most two the way that bowl season usually goes. So drink this up while you can. Um before we go, though, John, we've had an obviously a long edition uh, this week, but before we go, I, I we do it every week. I got to ask, what are you eating and drinking? Yeah, you know, I talked about a couple weeks ago making a pretty traditional chili, but I got a recipe for a, I guess I call it a Texas chili, and it's with two and a half pounds of beef chuck in it so i'm really interested to make that i i, I kind of go away from the traditional chilies when i make them zach i'm not a huge fan of kidney beans so i'm actually going to make this without beans so i'm going to cut up the the beef chuck um into probably a couple inch slices sear them on the on the grill for a few minutes um throw in some brown sugar some salt some vegetable oil cut up some onion i might do some red and green peppers as well to add into the chili, uh, obviously chili powder, and then add in some, you know, different kind of spices and stuff like that. Cause I like my chili pretty hot. So I'm really interested in going with this Texas chili. I was talking to my fiance about that earlier tonight about doing that this weekend. And she was really excited, never done it before. So this will be kind of a trial thing, but it's kind of fun to, to cook something for the first time um, and really get that trial and error going and seeing how you can kind of perfect that recipe over the years and everything. And then to drink, I went to the store recently and I found the, the Sam 76 lager that I talked about finding in a variety pack earlier in the season. I actually found a 12 pack cans of just that beer. Um, and it's, it's really good. Like it's a surprisingly really good beer. Like I, I didn't expect it to be as good. I kept seeing the commercials earlier this year talking about a beer that you can actually taste. I really like it. It's really the, the kind of versatile beer you like when you live in a climate like I do, where the weather is so unpredictable, you can never tell if it's actually winter time or if you're going to jump right back into fall um, it was 76 degrees the other day, and then the other night it dropped down to 33, and it's like, okay, you got to make up your mind. I don't know. So finding a versatile beer that can kind of fill that that winter gap, but also that, but can also function as a summer beer, is the best for me. So right now, Sam 76 Lager is is my go-to. Nice. I have a craving for fried chicken. I think this is a good time of season. Uh, there's nothing quite like championship week to break out an old favorite like that. And uh, so, I, you know, after a week of eating turkey, I'm going to switch to a different bird for Saturday. Um, and then to pair with it, I'm going to be uh, drinking a beer my wife actually found at the store. She knows I'm a big fan of sour beers. Um and she found this Belgian-style triple with really great sour notes. It's made here locally by Victory Brewing. It's called Sour Monkey Triple. Uh, it's one that you have to pace yourself with, though, because this thing is 9.5% alcohol by volume. 
Um, so if you're a lover of sour beers, I highly recommend you go out and get this. Do not expect to pound through a whole six-pack right away by any means if you have anything you need to be doing. Um, so for me, while I'm writing about the games, I'll be sipping on this uh, rather than slamming this. Um, or you'll be getting a lot of garbled language at Saturday Blitz next Saturday during championship week. So I'll be drinking that judiciously and responsibly, but really enjoying the flavor on it. That's interesting. I've never heard of that, but I'll have to be on the lookout because I do. I also have uh, a taste for sour beers like that. It, it's definitely an acquired one. I got hooked on it while I was at Oregon. There was a, a bar in Eugene called the First National Tap House that always had at least two or three really good, you know, uh, sours on their their tap list that cycled through. And I had a colleague in the archives who that was. Our thing when we'd get done with work, we'd go and have a sour beer or two. So, so finding a good local one here was a, a really revelatory find. Um, now I just got to be on the lookout for one that might be a little less alcoholic that I can I can drink a little bit less slowly so that it doesn't all warm up in time. On that note, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in and sticking with us as we went through this season, uh, our first season here with the Saturday Blitz podcast, covering this all for you. We'll still be here with you each week, talking throughout the championship week, throughout the postseason, and as we get into the long off season. But after this first last uh, regular season is in the books, I just have to say thanks for all of you who have been tuning in week after week. It's been a real pleasure, and I hope if your team is playing on Saturday or on Friday night in one of the conference championship games that you have all the luck in the world and that you have wonderful dining and drinking options as you do so. Thanks again. Until next Wednesday. I'm Zach Bogalki here with the Saturday Blitz podcast uh, with John Mitchell. Have a wonderful week.